Hello and welcome to Going Viral. I am David Lim. Dr. Gary Grohlman continues to give us updates and puts issues in context as COVID-19 vaccines are being rolled out and as data and reports of adverse events come to light. He will address issues with the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccines, including cases of serious allergies. Before we start, I'd like to encourage you to register for the next webcast, where you can always catch a high-quality lineup of speakers and topics that HealthEd has put together for you. HealthEd webcasts are carefully created to provide high-quality video and audio so that you have the best possible learning experience. It's free, you get CPD points, and it's all delivered directly to the digital device of your choice, wherever you choose to be. Register now at healthad.com.au. You can listen to these podcasts on the HealthEd website, or you can download the HealthEd app and access many other learning resources as well. Hey, Dr. Grohlman, can you tell us about yourself? Hello, David. Yes, I'm a virologist. I am consultant in private industry at the moment, but I have been with the World Health Organization for the last number of years, uh, working on vaccines and also the Therapeutic Goods Administration in Australia prior to that for about 17 years. And before that, I had a research career, uh, CDC and Westmead Hospital, Sydney University. Uh, thank you, Gary. You certainly are one of the more regular uh speakers at the Going Viral podcast series. Now, there's been a lot happening lately in this space, but I would like to start with the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine and its rollout in the UK. Now, I guess the first thing is, uh, have you heard of how the actual infrastructure and the rolling out's going at the moment because of this need to maintain the extremely cold chain? Well, there's been no um, reports of any disasters, but obviously there are difficulties in the sense that it has to be frozen and then when it's received, it needs to be diluted and then taken up into syringes and stored. And then uh, it needs to be rolled out to the people who come. And it also needs to be used within a few days. Otherwise, it needs to be thrown out. So, So there are some issues there. For a place like Australia, there might be more issues because we have people spread out over a larger area, whereas okay. in the UK it's more concentrated, so it might be a little easier there. So when it, this particular vaccine is rolled out in Australia, they'll need to consider various hubs and uh, probably hospitals will be the hub, possibly pharmacies, uh, GP, large GP practices perhaps, where they can have a nurse literally rolling out the vaccine uh, on appointment, I think would be the best, or have vaccination days and they're rolling it out slowly in the UK. Now looking at reports of adverse events with the Pfizer biotech vaccines uh, I think I've read a few. One was of a nurse developing very high fevers and severe headaches Um, but what intrigued me was a comment made by one of the investigators who said that um, you know uh, the numbers of people with uh, adverse events range from about 2 to 10%, maybe 15%. Now, whilst they're all transient, um, 15% is actually not a small figure. I expect it will be higher. The 
uh, fact is, it's probably going to be more like 25%, to be honest, David, by the time it goes out into the field, because the 10 or 15% is what you will see in a very controlled phase three efficacy study. But once it is rolled out, you'll get higher numbers of these transient reactions. Okay. They're tolerable. It's what we'll see with a lot of vaccines. Uh, but because they're now uncontrolled vaccinees, uh, that could have any sort of condition, we'll probably get higher numbers of uh, moderate to mild uh, adverse reactions. Mm -hmm. uh, they'll be tolerable and treatable, but we have had a few cases of severe allergic adverse reaction, which you may have read about um, as well in the press. So yes. people that are using EpiPens, uh, people that normally have severe allergic reactions, and su suggestion has been by regulators so far uh, that perhaps these groups of people should not take the vaccine at this time. Uh, and that'll be up to various health authorities in various countries of the world to determine the policy. But it would make sense that if you're on an EpiPen or you have a history of severe allergic reaction, then perhaps you shouldn't take the vaccine at this time and wait for a vaccine that doesn't give uh, such reactions. Mm. Um, and um, we have the luxury to do that. And the more people that do get vaccinated, that don't have these sorts of issues, the better, of course, it takes them out of the chain of infection, protects them, protects hospitals and so on. But I also have to say that most places that have been rolling out the vaccine also have experienced nurses and they can, of course, treat uh, serious adverse reactions as necessary. Um, so there shouldn't be any calamity as such, but uh, there might be a few hurdles for people that are prone uh, to such illnesses. It's not as if we haven't given either vaccines or infusions of iron or other things that can cause allergic reactions. So it's not as if we've never done that. I, I just feel that uh, it'd be really wonderful when all uh, the people who give vaccines, including GPs uh, and nurses, are very well versed so that we know exactly what to counsel our patients. Yes, couldn't agree more. <laughs> Uh, that's why we need transparency that we've spoken about before. We need transparency in the data so people know to expect, say, 20, 25% of people with mild <laughs> reactions and those that uh, are on EpiPens or have other uh, severe allergic conditions uh, will need to be watched very, very carefully and possibly not given the vaccine at this time. We might have to wait. This is a problem with the warp speed, so to speak. We haven't had the time to study all the special groups. Uh -huh. Uh, and um, uh, that will, some of this will fall out now in the phase four study once the vaccine is being rolled out. I notice also AstraZeneca are redoing a lot of their studies uh, because of the issue of um, half dose followed by full dose. And also they haven't done their studies in people over the age of 55. So they're being done now. But that vaccine, which is a viral vector vaccine and different to the mRNA, might be available soon as well for 18 to 55 year olds. Uh, and um, we'll see how that one goes. But again, in the phase three studies, there've been no severe adverse reactions. And the same with the protein vaccines represented by Novavax at this time has also uh, not shown any severe adverse reactions as far as we know. Now I'll come to those vaccines very briefly because for, for GPs, when you say serious allergies, we take it to mean anything from severe allergic rhinitis, asthma, anaphylaxis, severe drug reaction. So it hasn't really helped us 
in the sense that, you know, if you said patients with severe allergies shouldn't have the injections, uh, and yet my patients who get, say, a severe rash or a horrendous rhinitis, does that exclude them? I expect these answers will come later, but um, these sorts of reports, if anything else, uh, does cloud the issue rather than clarify it. Yes, I agree, David. Um, it does cloud the issue a bit, and again, we've uh, rushed the um, uh, vaccine studies necessarily, so a lot of this will fall out as the vaccine is rolled out. We have a slight advantage in Australia that we won't see these vaccines until about March, and that ends up being a good thing, I think, because we see what goes on overseas uh, first, and we'll be able to make better determinations about who should and shouldn't get the vaccine, or what kinds of patients with allergic risk and so on may need to be excluded, at least temporarily. And as the data rolls out with other vaccines, like the viral vector and protein vaccines, it might be that certain groups of patients might be better off getting that kind of vaccine. Remember also um, that we need two vaccine doses, so we need to watch that as well in patients, although so far as I understand the data, at least in the phase three study, uh, uh, more um, reactions have occurred on the first dose than the second. Uh, that's, that's been interesting as well. But again, that's phase three data, not phase four data, where it's unrestricted in terms of the type of patient that you're vaccinating. Gary, one of the comments you keep mentioning every time I speak with you is the integrity and diligence of our TGA. So I suspect they are absolutely flat out looking at every little bit of data coming in because, you know, Australian doctors um, trust them implicitly. I think that's the case for all the Western <coughs> regulators, um, uh, the TGA, MHRA, EMA, FDA, considered to be, uh, you know, the top five or 10 in the world, uh, and everybody looks to those particular regulators to see um, how they're faring and how they're assessing things and the sorts of questions they ask. And of course, there's a lot of interaction between regulators as well um, under various memoranda of understanding where you know, questions are asked and information is exchanged. So uh, all that is very, very important. So I do think we can have a lot of confidence in, in our regulatory system here in Australia as well as in the major regulators overseas, knowing also that it's linked strongly to uh, good scientists and medical people, very okay. strong committees, uh, and also uh, into legislation. So, um, you know, it's highly regulated from that point of view. Uh, it's in a legal framework uh, and everything must be adhered to. You can't be pressured just because one regulator gives it a tick doesn't mean another one has to just because some politicians say it should be rolled out now, doesn't mean it has to. So there's no pressure from that point of view and it's important that there's no pressure and the regulators can um, make their decisions very clearly, firstly on uh, efficacy and effectiveness and then uh, secondly on uh, safety, of course, and then uh, various other issues that uh, might arise in terms of special groups. Uh, so I think we can have a lot of confidence in the regulatory system here in Australia, as well as key regulators overseas. They have looked at it first, of course, the MHRA, FDA and EMA. They're making their decisions. The Canadian regulator as well is making its decisions. And I imagine the next two or three weeks, they will approve uh, the Pfizer vaccine and possibly the Moderna vaccine 
Remember, these are only approved for emergency use. There's not final approval yet. And um, uh, they will be carefully looking at the rollout of the first few hundred thousand people to see what data then comes back as well before they give the final uh, approval, which might still take some months. And I expect Australia will probably do the same, give approval, possibly full approval around about March, and then very carefully watch the rollout. So there is an onus on the companies as well to collect data and present that to the TGA on safety and efficacy and so on. Uh, that's really important. And of course, there is a system where GPs can report directly to the TGA. In fact, any individual can report directly to the TGA any adverse reaction due to a vaccine or drug. Thank you for reminding us of the process, Gary. Now, the Oxford uh, AstraZeneca vaccine seems to have raised more questions than giving us answers. And you mentioned very briefly that they're actually redoing some parts of the trials so that um, we can probably either understand or overcome the impediment of the two-dose trials. So where are we at at the moment with the AstraZeneca vaccine? Well, it's a viral vector vaccine, and they've discovered that a half-dose followed by a full dose gives you better efficacy, so more than 90%, whereas a full dose followed by a full dose doesn't give you um, as good a efficacy, about 62 or 3%. So that's been a little bit of a revelation. Um, and again, if things hadn't been rushed, they might have found that out first, you know, generally in the phase one or two study rather than the phase three. Nevertheless, um, they now have that information and they're redoing part of their trial and also now doing um, a trial in the over 55s, which mm. they uh, didn't do before. So we'll just have to await that data. It won't take long to collect. But the, it doesn't mean the vaccine can't be used. It can be used in uh, 18 to 55-year-olds if the regulators agree. And they've also applied for emergency use. Given the situation in Europe, the UK, the Americas in particular, where uh, the virus clearly has gone rampant and is spreading very quickly, infecting a lot of people, it makes sense to... Um, try emergency use in those places and uh, vaccinate as many people as possible. But no one vaccine manufacturer will be able to supply everybody in the first year. So you do need a variety of vaccines. That then gives us further information on which vaccines might be best for different age groups, issues, medical issues that people might have. Um, and ultimately, we'll be able to find out in time uh, which vaccines are the most efficacious and the safest to use. Good. Now, Gary, I've also noticed that uh, Indonesia has, is just about to embark on mass vaccinations using the Chinese Sinovac vaccine. What have you heard about this vaccine and do you have any comments about this mass immunisation? Well, Sinovac has had some trouble, as we all know, in the past with um, fairly weak transparency, lack of publications. There's in accusations of graft and corruption, what you might call moral flexibility. Uh, there have been court cases, some people have been jailed and so on. And these bribery allegations have been going on for some time and even a regulator in China was bribed. So it doesn't give a lot of confidence to Western regulators and scientists, vaccinologists, uh, in terms of the rollout of such a vaccine. It certainly, I doubt, would be um, allowed in Western countries. 
uh, given also that there are very, very good alternatives. Now, the efficacy data is still under a cloud. There's been no publication. There have been a few claims, but we need to see data. So we haven't seen very good data yet on safety and efficacy from that vaccine. It's basically been uh, hearsay uh, in the sense that they've said, you know, we've inoculated hundreds of thousands of people in China uh, and it's going well. Well, we haven't seen the data, so we don't really know. Mm. So it's very, very difficult to trust. I don't want to be too negative on it, but unless there's data, it's very hard to comment. And unfortunately, the history of the company uh, doesn't inspire confidence. So that's uh, probably all I have to say on it. No, it's very important we have the contacts behind this particular vaccine. Um, now, do you have any further updates on any of the other vaccines? You did mention the protein vaccines uh, and, and, and briefly mentioned them. Have you heard not just about how safe they are, um, any details at all from any of the trials for the other vaccines? Yeah, there's, there's some um, uh, data published information on the Novavax vaccine. Um, it's certainly shown good efficacy and I think would uh, be looked on favourably by regulators from an efficacy point of view. There are no safety issues that are major as far as we know. Again, the vaccines have been in 30 to 40,000 people. So it gives us a one in 3,000 to 4,000 uh, chance of an ad a serious adverse reaction. It gives us confidence that that um, won't happen. Um, we won't know until the phase four studies are done. Again, as I mentioned before, these are highly controlled phase three studies. So it's still expected that efficacy and safety will be good for the protein vaccines. Uh, and they've got a long history of safety anyway. Some of them use adjuvants, which also have a long history of safety, the ones that they're using. Um, so there shouldn't be any problem uh, with these vaccines. And we all await the data and final regulatory approval. Yeah. So I've been there before a number of regulators now for emergency approval. I, I believe that we have a protein adjuvant vaccine coming from Adelaide, is that right? Yes, there's um, one in Adelaide. Again, uh, we need to see the phase uh, three data for that one. There's also the UQ CSL uh, vaccine and data's coming through there. And there are a number of vaccines from the Doherty Center, which um, are looking for phase one, two studies at the moment, uh, which also look very exciting. Uh, and uh, I think Australia will be well positioned in about a year's time with its own vaccines, probably being all manufactured in Australia uh, as well. And um, we'll be able to supply the region and so on once those vaccines are available. Vaccines will be necessary because we'll probably need them every six months. We'll need boosters to ensure that the uh, spread of virus is under control and the vaccine should be able to help enormously in that regard. A few last questions. Uh, you also mentioned to me that some of this start, uh, data shows that the vaccines were pretty good at uh, secondary outcomes of hospitalizations and severe disease, but there was still no good evidence or clear evidence of uh, reduction of transmission. Are you seeing some of those data coming through? Well, when we say it's 90% effective or 95% effective, if that's the case, then there's still 5% of people who will be carrying the virus in the community. There'll always be this asymptomatic fraction mm -hmm. uh, that will be able to spread the virus continuously in the community. We see mm -hmm. the same with many other diseases because vaccines are not sterilised. Um, 
until we get a sterilizing vaccine, we won't be able to eliminate it. Uh, and okay. then we have to get it into everybody as well. But that won't be the case for some time. Uh, so we will need boosters, but we have seen good evidence for it to crush the curve and to minimize deaths and also serious illness. Mm-hmm. So it will reduce hospitalizations. I think all the vaccines will easily meet those endpoints. They're in towards minimizing hospitalizations and reducing mortality significantly. And that's really good news about these vaccines. But it won't stop necessarily spread in the community. It will, you know, there'll be a number of people who will get the vaccine, uh, still have asymptomatic infection. There'll be a number of people who will get the vaccine and still have infection, in fact. Uh, So the virus will still be being spread and potentially uh, spread to others. So we still need to be careful. And my constant message is, uh, as you know, I think every time we speak, uh, even though we have uh, vaccines that will be available soon, Mm -hmm. it's really, really important not to drop the ball on all the social distancing and hygiene practices that we've been educating ourselves in over the last year or so. That's really, really important. That is maintained, even though we have vaccines, and and keep up that awareness and so on. Gary, every time I speak with you, those words are etched into my brain. I, I love it. <laughs> I apologise for that, but I think it's really, really important. Now, once again, very briefly, can you just explain the difference between emergency approval and general approval? Well, the general approval is where everything's been fully studied and all the data is in, and the regulators had uh, have had the time that they need. Uh, to ensure that all aspects of the vaccine have been considered uh, and is considered to be efficacious and safe. And so it's rolled out. And sometimes there's quite a bit of phase four data in that as well Mm -hmm. um, to give confidence. All this data from other countries or studies. With the uh, emergency approval, it's done conditionally. So not all the data is in and more data still needs to come in. But given the situation of deaths and illness in the community is given conditional approval and the condition is that further data comes in and there's further phase four data that comes in as the vaccine is rolled out. So it's not final approval, it's just conditional. It happens very rarely with a vaccine, I might add. It can happen with a drug for cancer or something like this, but uh, for a vaccine it's quite rare because vaccines go into healthy people. So you want full confidence of uh, putting that kind of drug into a human being. So uh, it's very unusual. I don't believe it's actually happened in Australia before. Um, so I'm not sure if it will be conditional or full approval by March. I expect it will be full, full approval. But in um, Britain and the EU and the FDA, they do have a, a system for emergency approval of any drug, including vaccines. And that's what the companies are seeking uh, in the interim until all the data comes in and then they can give get full approval for the vaccine. Now, Gary, if you had a crystal ball and, and, and all these vaccines rolling out, how far into the future do you think we will need to be vaccinated? Uh, a very good question, David. Um, it's almost impossible to answer, but at the moment it, it seems on the data that we will need uh, vaccines and boosters every six months. I think as the virus changes, it's changing quite slowly, but as it changes, there will be new strains that will be put into vaccines and we can get them as boosters as well. Um, I do think that for people that have had the normal, if I can call them that, the normal coronaviruses before, like 
um, uh, as we experience as the common cold, there'll be some cross protection from them as well. And as vaccines get better, we should be able to have a sterilizing vaccine in due course. We will simply need one shot and we won't need another one until the virus changes, just like flu. Uh -huh. The virus may not change for several years and then we might need another one. I do think coronavirus will be here to stay, but eventually as it goes through the community and vaccines are rolled out, uh, I do think it'll end up being basically a common cold and give 99% of people an asymptomatic infection. It's now, in fact, um, a mild infection. It'll just end up being a mild to asymptomatic virus, except for uh, people in special groups with immunocompromised status or immunosenescence uh, will need to watch them carefully, as we always do anyway, uh, for any viral infection. Now, before I leave you, Gary, do you have any final messages? Well, my, <laughs> David, my final messages are always the same, particularly not to drop the ball on, on hygiene and so on. Um, and social distancing, I think that's going to be so important. I think people should get the vaccine. They should carefully consider getting the vaccine. It's not mandatory. But as the vaccines roll out, I think there's a communal responsibility to get them. Um, but uh, if people are in an allergic group of some sort or an at-risk group, then maybe they should wait for a while. In any event, we'll all be waiting until March. And I think it's important that all of us, whether we're GPs or scientists or in government, um, sit back and really evaluate the data very, very carefully between now and March and then make um, uh, appropriate decisions for our patients. Gary, I'm sure with the very rapid uh, release of data and so many trials happening, uh, I'm sure within a few short days or weeks, I'll be speaking with you again. I look forward to it, David. Thank you very much. Thank you for giving us updates, Gary, and wishing you a good day. Just a quick reminder as we wrap up to encourage you to register for the next webcast, where you can always catch a high-quality lineup of speakers and topics that HealthEd has put together for you. HealthEd webcasts are carefully created to provide high-quality video and audio so that you have the best possible learning experience. It's free. You get CPD points and it's all delivered directly to the digital device of your choice, wherever you choose to be. Register now at healthad.com.au. You can claim RACGP CPD points for listening to this podcast using the self-claim option. Log into your account on the RACGP website, go to the CPD section and click on self-claim.